Hello and welcome to Cabin Fever Fables. I'm Sarah Hunt from indie publisher Saraband. We started this podcast 12 weeks ago, just as the spread of coronavirus was escalating in the UK, and we were about to be locked down at home. Far too late, as we later discovered, to avoid a death toll that's now conservatively estimated at more than 60,000, using the accepted measure for excess deaths. Fast forward to today, and we really should still be locked down. Leading scientists are advising that infection levels are still too high to relax social distancing to the levels being rolled out in England and that there's no safe place away from home for the most vulnerable who've been shielding. Care homes, residents and care workers have been left horribly unprotected and we've seen the terrible consequences. The quarantine plan seems to be nonsense, given that almost everywhere is safer than the UK just now. And when people enter the country under these proposed rules, They'll be able to take public transport, stay in a hotel and so on. And Johnson has had to back down after the pantomime of forcing MPs back to Westminster to vote in person. We're just still far too sick for all of this. Everything smacks of creating deliberate distractions from the government's mistakes. Enter our guest today, David Howe a retired academic and a writer. David studied geology as an undergraduate, largely inspired by his love of the Lake District, with its glaciated mountains and quarries, its beautiful valleys, woods and waters. David doesn't live in Cumbria, so he has been desperately wishing he could visit during the spring and early summer when it's arguably at its most bewitching and the weather's been amazing. But unlike certain special advisors we could name, David stayed at home, keeping himself and others safe. Far from heading out for bluebell walks at the height of lockdown, or even trailing before a gorgeous sunny weekend that restrictions will be eased a little the following Monday, David has followed the letter and spirit of the rules. He has, though, come up with a kind of workaround, a way to visit the lakes virtually and completely safely. David, can you tell us more? On a bright spring morning, I might normally find myself in the central lakes, wandering by the beck that burbles its way along Great Langdale. I'd see the pike towering ahead, and the raggedy, craggedy outline of Harrison Pike silhouetted against a pale blue sky. But I'm not there, and it's right that I'm not there. For the time being, the advice is to stay at home, not travel and not crowd the parks, the villages, the tourist hotspots. So I'm here, at home, self-isolating and social distancing. However, I have discovered a way to be there, in Langdale, gazing up at the fells. It's a virtual way. I'm visiting Google Maps. I'm zooming in on Cumbria and navigating my way further down to the B5343 at Chapel Style. And down in the bottom right-hand corner of the page, there's a little icon. I'm dragging the tiny person and dropping her, or maybe it's a him, down onto the road. And hey, here I am on the B5343. 
I'm going to walk virtually west in ten metre bounds, all the way to Dungeon Gill and the beautiful amphitheatre where Mickledon Beck and Oxendale Beck meet. I'll be surrounded on all sides by the elemental sublime fells. I can rotate my view through 360 degrees, taking the full panorama, look up as well as down. Google has even arranged for the sun to shine in an almost cloudless sky. A perfect, wonderful, magical day. I think I'm going to enjoy myself. So let's get going. Let's go for a virtual walk. You can join me if you want. Many nature writers describe feeling lost, small, wonderful, insignificant, ecstatic even, whenever the landscape or the elements overpower their senses. It is nature's infinite eternal beauty and utter indifference that puts our short, tiny lives into perspective, even as our senses dissolve in the heart-stopping timelessness into which we cast ourselves, at least for a few moments. The Romantics, of course, experienced these feelings of the sublime whenever they had contact with nature's raw, untamed beauty. Wild winds and thunderous storms excite, raging seas mesmerise, and rugged mountain peaks remind you how very small you are in, oh, such a very big world. But there's also another kind of walking that transports the traveller a journey into the self, as well as an experience beyond the self. All of this is beautifully said by that most consummate and earthbound of nature writers, Nan Shepherd. In her book, The Living Mountain, she searches for the essential nature of the Scottish Cairngorms and the wild world around her. For her, working is a journey into being. For, she says, as I penetrate more deeply into the mountain's life, I penetrate also into my own. For an hour I am beyond desire. I am not out of myself, but in myself. I am. The fells in Great Langdale are made of rocks laid down long, long ago. They're volcanic rocks. 445 million years ago, where we're virtually standing now, was a violent place, a place where exploding volcanoes were sending lavas, blobs of molten rock and hot gases thousands of feet into the air and sending superheated pyroclastic flows roaring down slopes and over shallow seas before they eventually settled and cooled in layer upon layer of volcanic rocks. Today, geologists call these rocks the Upper Borrowday Volcanics. The violent origins of these rocks explains why the fells around this area are so rugged and so ragged in outline. I'm still in the Google Matrix. I've leapt along the road to the sharp corner just beyond the entrance to the old Dungeon Gill Hotel. And as I look west along Oxendale Beck, I can see the crinkled crags. The very name evokes the rock's rough, tough character. I close my eyes. In my mind, I'm going back millions and millions of years, back to the Cambrian and Ordovician geological periods. This is when the story of the lake's central and highest mountains first begins. I'm now standing on the seashore of an ancient continent known as Avalonia. I'm 30 degrees south of the equator, and I'm looking north across a thousand-mile-wide ocean. It's called the Iapetus Ocean, named after the Greek Titan. Iapetus was the father of Atlas, after whom the much younger Atlantic Ocean is named. On the far side of the Iapetus Ocean lies another continent, another tectonic plate. This is Laurentia. Along Laurentia's southern edges are bits of land that one day will become parts of Northern Ireland and Scotland. But in geology, nothing stands still. The planet is a restless place. 
the earth's tectonic plates rift and drift. They ride the hot glowing slow flowing mantle that lies deep below the crust. And here, where I'm standing now, half a billion years ago, Avalonia and Laurentia begin their slow motion journeys. They are creeping towards each other a few centimetres a year. They're on a collision course. The ocean that separates them is shrinking. And eventually the Laurentian plate to the north meets, then plunges beneath the Avalonian plate in the south. All that's left of the once vast Iapetus ocean are the thousands and thousands of feet of muds and fine sands that have been settling on the sinking seafloor for millions of years. Their metamorphosed future will be found in the slates and mountains of Skiddor. It's as Laurentia drives and dives beneath Avalonia that crustal rocks, now deep beneath a tectonic crumple zone, begin to melt. Plumes of molten lava make their way to the surface. They erupt as volcanoes. At first they are relatively quiet, oozing treacly rivers of basaltic lava. But later phases become increasingly violent. These volcanoes blast out magma, poisonous gases and ash. The tectonic crash zone is now a place of volcanic islands, shallow seas, rising mountains, a place of barren rocks, rivers and lakes. Then, after millions of years of lavas pouring, volcanoes erupting and mountains rising, things begin to calm down. The volcanic action moves south to areas that now form the rocks and mountains of Snowdonia, Cadaridris and West Pembroke. By the time they'd ended their fiery days, the Borrowdale Volcanics had left behind them thousands of metres of lavas, tuffs, pyroclastics and sandy, silty sediments. And although they had been contorted, tilted and generally messed around by the vast passages of geological time, they are the stuff of my virtual world as I look across to Bowfell and the Crinkle Crags, Pike of Briscoe and Lingmore Fell, and of course the Langdale Pikes themselves. And just in case you were wondering, towards the end of this mighty convergence between Avalonia and Laurentia, England and Scotland were about to become fused, stitched together along the suture line of the old Iapetus Ocean, now closed forever. A geological union that predates the 1706 and 1707 Acts of Union by some 440 million years, and much more difficult to undo. Over these 400 and odd million years, where I'm standing has changed, changed and changed again. It's a place where mountains have risen and been worn away several times. Rivers have run, desert sands have blown, tropical forests have grown and seas have come and gone. And throughout this long time the tectonic plates continued to shift and drift. What are now the British Isles became part of a vast Eurasian plate, a new continent. From its original anchorage south of the equator, this plate slowly drifted north, across the equator, over the Tropic of Cancer, and on to where we find ourselves today, some 50 to 60 degrees north, and geologically speaking, very much part of Europe. We're almost back in the present. Two and a half million years ago, ice sheets covered this land, frost shattered the Cumbrian peaks, glaciers carved the fells, they scoured and gouged their way down the valleys. They left us with wide, flat-bottomed, U-shaped valleys and a wheel of radiating ribbon lakes. In my virtual world, I take one more deep breath. In such beautiful places, our fleeting lives, says the philosopher Don Cupid, feel both infinitely important and infinitely unimportant. It is in these places of remote, sublime, grand beauty 
that the boundary between self and the world of land, lake and sky dissolves. We become one. The senses are overwhelmed. We literally feel sensational. Thank you, David. You've really taken our minds off being fed up at home, wishing we could be out. Between the sublime words of Nan Shepherd and travelling so very far back in time. I've heard lots of people saying that their sense of time has been really distorted during lockdown. The weeks seem to be flying by for a lot of us. But it also seems like ages. Does it feel to you like lockdown has been going on forever? I think it's getting longer, the longer it goes on. <laughs> no, that sounds obvious, but uh, at first, because I'm sort of semi-retired, it didn't feel too different to normal. But as I was saying, because the weeks and months ahead seem to lack the punctuation marks that you normally have for holidays and friends and events and restaurants, and they've all disappeared. So it does feel suddenly rather retracted. So yeah, it does feel a bit long uh, and frustrating to say the least. And is that part of the appeal of geology for you, that looking at time in these huge chunks of geological eras can help to put things in the present day into some sort of perspective? Yeah, I think um, I'm not alone in that, really. I think most people who study geology or cosmology, all the big sciences, when they have that big sense of time and distance, get quite philosophical about it. In fact, I've just finished reading a book by Brian Green. He's a, an American theoretical physicist who writes lots of popular science books. And he's just written one on, uh, what's he called, Until the End of Time. And for him, we're not talking geological time, we're talking cosmological time, which is trillions of years into the future. But like most people, he, he finds it eventually a little bit frightening and awe-inspiring, but then it settles down to a sense of understanding your place in the universe and time is, is just a fraction, it's a blip, it's a blink, uh, and it sort of puts everything into perspective. So I think I have the same kind of feelings, um, particularly when I sense that, you know, this, this landscape, like the Lake District, is four or five hundred million years old, and there you are, around from here, 70 or 80 at best, um, and it does put things in perspective. And I, I quite like that feeling. It, it sort of settles things down. And what most people who operate with that kind of perspective begin to say is it teaches you to live in the moment. That's such an important lesson for now, living in the moment. So leaving aside the aforementioned special advisor who seems to be completely above the law, does this way of looking at things keep it all in perspective for you so that you're more able to put up with missing out on the glorious long sunny days of early summer when Borrowdale is at its absolute best? And of course, that's not even to mention that plenty of people who might be listening could have much worse and more pressing things to be worrying about and needing to take their minds off. Yes, I think, that's, I think that's the case. As I say, the kind of philosophical aspect of it does put you in the sense of, well, there's time, things happen, and things can unhappen. Uh, it's not going to go away. It'll be there when you've gone. Um, so just wait, be patient, uh, and enjoy it all the more. 
So I think, yes, it, it, for me, it relativizes the whole thing. And it actually calms me down, if I'm honest. That's a good one to remember. We could all replicate this feeling by stopping and either putting ourselves right in the moment, as you said earlier, or else looking up at the stars or thinking of the layers in a canyon or the shape of the mountains. To change the perspective even more, here's another question for you. What do you think future geologists will make of our time without all the minutiae, just looking at the evidence? Well, all the pollution, of course, will be laid down as a geological layer, uh, plastics at the bottom of the ocean, um, radioactivity spread across the planet. All of these will be markers that geologists in tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, will notice in rock formations. And if they don't know what happened, they'll wonder what happened, that it should be such a noticeable little strand and strata in the scheme of things. So they'll puzzle about that. But the other, perhaps the bigger one is because of climate change and global warming and its effect on biodiversity. Um, that will definitely leave a marker on the geological record that people in future generations will puzzle over. Um, so the general mass extinctions, as they're called, mark the divisions between the major geological periods. Um, and if there's a mass extinction now and everybody thinks there is about to be one or there is currently one happening, then of course it will be noticeable in the fossil record uh, and that will be commented upon. There's a slightly humorous side to it. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, a current geologist was speculating that um, because the, we eat so many chickens, um, the most common fossil remains in a million, two million years will be chicken bones. And they'll think the world is populated by chickens, dogs and cats, cows and sheep. And they'll be the major fossil finds in the future. Everything else is gone. So it's a planet overrun by sheep, cows, pigs, chickens, dogs and cats. Which I thought was both funny and rather frightening at the same time. Oh yes, the Anthropocene being defined as the age of the chicken. It sounds a bit Monty Python somehow. But we really have pushed the planet to its limits. Too many chickens, a drastic loss of biodiversity, mass extinctions, pollutions, plastics. I'm not so sure that um, this distraction has been quite so cheerful after all. But never mind, let's just change the subject yet again. I'm going to ask you, David, now if you could answer the four corona questions. Those are the ones we're asking everyone on this podcast. So... To start with, can you tell me, what are you reading? What have you been reading? I know we've already heard one answer to that, but is there a book that you've been reading to pass the time during lockdown? I'm just about to finish a book by Lisa Jewell called The House We Grew Up In. On the face of it, it's about a perfect family. But we discover over the years that mum's a hoarder and how her hoarding affects relationships within the family in ways that are both complex and intricate and so revealing, really enjoying it. By way of contrast, I'm reading another book. Um, this is by Richard Holloway. He used to be Bishop of Edinburgh, but he lost his faith. He's written lots over the years and I enjoy most of what he writes. Um, the book I'm reading at the moment is called Waiting for the Last Bus. 
that's because I'm of a certain age. And books about getting old and the experiences and reflection one has as one gets older become more and more interesting. So I'm reading Richard's book and really enjoying that as well. More very philosophical thoughts there and nice as well that it's balanced with a, a lighter one. Um, can you tell us now what will you be cooking tonight? Well, what am I cooking tonight? Um, well, having just listened to Sue Lawrence's podcast, I'm tempted to simply say, well, better that. Um, it's a recipe for spaghetti and sardines, in case you've not listened to it, and it sounds really, really nice. But something I've been cooking myself off and on over the last few weeks is a recipe that involves kale and anchovies. Okay, okay, doesn't sound brilliant, but bear with me. You blanch a lot of kale, put it in a blender, add lots of olive oil, creme fraiche, some anchovies, um, some garlic, a bit of basil, a bit of thyme, a bit of chilli, a bit of Dijon mustard, and you zap it all up till it gets the texture of a kind of a mayonnaise. Uh, you warm it through and put it on some toast, and on top of all that you add a poached egg. It's delicious, and I'm addicted to it. Ooh, that's an interesting answer. Well, anything that involves lots of kale sounds pretty good to me. And uh, who, if you could have absolutely anyone, would you invite to dine with you? Well, I think I'd invite Richard Holloway, because I think I'd really enjoy his company and his reflections on his own life and life in general. So Richard would be definitely a welcome guest. Um, I quite enjoy Val Dermot's crime fiction, and when I've seen her and heard her on the seen on the telly and heard on the radio. I quite like the sound of Val, so I think I'll invite Val along as well. Uh, and a couple of months ago, I heard Mary Beard interview Margaret Atwood. Um, Margaret sounded very droll, very dry, very funny, very wise. So I'm definitely going to invite Margaret as well, along with Val. And I suspect they'll enjoy each other's company. But if I can, just one more person, because in The Guardian, I read a piece by Nancy Banks-Smith, who's come out of retirement. And Nancy writes the most clever, wonderful pieces. Uh, she makes me laugh, and I think she'd be a really good addition to the, to the gathering. I suspect I'll be doing a lot of listening and not much contributing, but I'd enjoy the evening anyway. What a brilliant combination. I'd love to be a fly on the wall. Well, lastly... Um, is there any particular behaviour or have you heard or seen anything that you'll really associate with lockdown or that's become very noticeable to you? Well, my children, grandchildren keep sending me YouTube clips and video clips of people's attempts to lighten up the mood. Um, how to survive homeschooling your kids, um, how to keep your social distance as you're wandering outside. <laughs> Some really, really clever pieces and very funny pieces that people have done. Check them out on YouTube or wherever. Uh, they'll lighten your day and make you laugh. What a lovely note to end on. Thanks very much for taking us on that virtual trip through the lakes and through time and all the other answers. It was really nice to speak to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again to David Howe for the chat. David's book about the Lake District is called Rocks and Rain, Reason and Romance. 
The rocks and rain in the title refer to the geological processes and how they and the climate have shaped the landscape and vegetation. But that's just a part of the book. It's mostly about how the lakes and fells have shaped people's lives in the history there of mining and farming and fired the imaginations of the great artists, the poets and scientists from the area. It's a fascinating read. It's an odd week now because this is the first Thursday for a good while that we haven't all gathered at our doorsteps with neighbours to applaud the NHS. It's a good time to reflect on how brilliantly so many ordinary people have risen to the incredible challenges of lockdown, key workers in particular, and some of them making extraordinary sacrifices. We've also reached a point at which the latest daily official deaths figure from COVID-19 of 359 for the UK exceeds the sum total of all reported deaths from the other 27 EU countries combined, that being 314 for the same 24-hour period. Hey-ho! No wonder the government is trying to distract us from the decisions they've been making and the mess-ups of the track and trace system and everything else. Enough of the politics. We're about stories. And we'll be back with another author soon. In the meantime, thanks for listening in and thanks to everyone who's been in touch. With a special shout out to the RNIB who have been featuring our podcast on their own Connect radio channel for listeners with impaired vision. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Saraband Books, so do get in touch. Bye-bye.